Well, a blessed uh, Resurrection Sunday to you. Um, it is the high point of uh, the Christian church that we celebrate um, the Lord's resurrection. And there's a lot of reasons for that, and we have covered that um, every Easter, and, and I am thankful that we do. But just as a reminder to you, if not for the resurrection, everything that Jesus claimed would merely be theory. Right? He claimed to bring us life, to forgive our sins, to give us life that could overcome death. He himself claimed that he is the resurrection and the life. And all of that is just theoretical unless he is raised from the dead. So then in 1 Corinthians 15, as we celebrate his resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15 reminds us that if he is not raised from the, the, the dead, then we are still in our sins. That there is no redemption. There's no price that has been fully paid and we are still sinners condemned by our sinfulness before a holy God. But the beauty of Christ's sacrificial death on our behalf and his resurrection on that Sunday morning is that because he is alive, then not only have we been baptized with him into his death, but we are raised again into new life because of him. And that's really the topic this morning. We are going to be speaking to the idea of the new life that is given to us through God's only son. Um, our message this morning is God gave his only son. And I think the primary text is really John 3.16. And then we'll be also looking at 17 through 21. But um, it's really an exposition of 3.16 and then kind of following through in this entire discourse, speaking of what the value of Christ's sacrifice and his resurrection means for us. Um, almost all of you guys know John 3.16. And if I asked you to recite it, we could probably all recite it together. Let's do that, right? If you know it, speak it. If you don't know it, fake the funk, right, and join us. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever or whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now, depending on which version you learned, right, I, I accidentally threw in the whosoever because uh, that's my old NASB kind of leaking out. But, um, but that, that valuable truth, and the reason why that has become a cornerstone verse for most Christians and the one that most of us have memorized from a young age is because it speaks a truth that is really the reality of the gospel in summary. This is, this is why we believe. This is what we believe. And this is what we celebrate in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ salvation, eternal life, forgiveness of sins because God so loved us that he gave us his son. So as we look at this text this morning, I'd encourage you to be reminded of these truths if indeed you have treasured the truth of the gospel and life in Jesus Christ. I trust that that's for many of you, but I hope that for some of you, this might be the day that you begin to see by the eyes of faith um, what it means to trust in Jesus Christ and him alone for salvation in life. But shall we begin our time in a word of prayer as we look to the passage this morning? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the songs that we sang that celebrate the resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, there are many leaders there are many religious figures that have, uh, that have walked through the path of human history, but none have been raised from the dead. In fact, none have claimed that they would die on our behalf and then be raised from the dead and have done exactly that, except Jesus. We thank you that even as we think on this wonderful passage that speaks to how you gave us your only son so that we might have life that we might believe its truthfulness, that we might believe in the name of Jesus Christ. And that would give us life. Not just an anticipation of a life to come, which we have, but eternal life, a new covenant reality, a transformation from within, victory over sin and death, all of that experience with gladness 
and worshiping joy, all of that experience now. Lord, help us to walk in a manner that pleases you. And even as we look at this text this morning and we celebrate um, the death and resurrection of our Savior, help us to set aside all the things that hinder us, all those things, Lord, that, that are just so petty when eternity is at stake. And help us cling to our Savior with renewed gladness and thankfulness and purpose. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. John 3, 16 through 21 is our text this morning. And uh, it leaves off where we left off last week. Last week we looked at verses 1 through 15. And in that is an encounter of a Pharisee. In fact, Jesus calls him the teacher of the law, suggesting that he was one of the best of the teachers amongst the religious leaders. And Nicodemus, that's his name, he comes to speak to Jesus because he senses that Jesus is sent by God. That's his key thing. That's the reason why he sought Jesus out. And Jesus responds to him, not talking so much about, oh, yeah, you know, I have been sent by God, but instead directs him immediately to the thing that he needs to understand most. You must be born again. I mean, that's the first thing that Jesus addresses with Nicodemus. And we say that Nicodemus probably understands something of what he means, that there must be some kind of a, a transformation, some kind of a, um, a change in the human soul that is so significant that it would be considered life after death. And his whole point is, how can someone be reborn? And he uses the same illustration that Jesus used. If you're going to talk about rebirth, it's as impossible as saying that, let me get small again, climb back into my mother's womb, and be born a second time. How can, how can a man do such a thing? And Jesus' explanation is, the power of the Holy Spirit is the only way that such miraculous change can take place. But is the power of the Holy Spirit Right? connected in conjunction with the Son of Man being lifted up. And so the last words, the last two verses that lead up to John 3.16 is John 13, John 3, uh, 14 and 15. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. See, that's where it all begins and that's where John 3.16 really flows out of. I, I've made our outline into basically three exhortations that I think is appropriate at Easter. That we should indeed believe in God's only son, that's 3.16. We should believe in his name, that's 17 and 18. And we should come to his light, verse 19 through 21. But John 3.16 begins in the shadow of verses 13 and 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So we start there. Because John 3.16, as familiar as it is to you, I want to just take it apart phrase by phrase. We begin with that first phrase, for God so loved the world. The four connects us to the preceding. And it's an expansion of what he's already said. Whatever he means by the Son of Man must be lifted up so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. That's verse 14 and 15. Then on that basis, he expands on that. He wants to say more. And so that's why it begins with four, right? Like if you just take the verse, 316, and you drop four, it would still make absolute sense. God so loved the world. That's the gist of it, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The four reminds us that he's expanding on what he's already said. The son of man must be lifted up. You must believe, and then you'll have eternal life. So this is expansion. And the first thing out of Jesus' mouth in explaining this out is, see, it's because God so loved the world. The so is important. The so is so important, right? Um, we use so in that same way. The particle tells us and it emphasizes something of the manner of God's love. In other words, how or how intensely, we could say, does God love the world? God so loved the world that he did this. 
he gave us his only son. He so loved the world, speaks of a manner, a type, a style of God's love, and it emphasizes the intensity of it. He didn't just love the world. He so loved the world that he did something that was impossible to believe, that is beyond our imagination to understand. Like, like, man, that is so much more than we could have anticipated. That's the way we speak, and we use that same terminology or that same expression, and that's what that's, this verse or this phrase means. God so loved the world. And the term for the world is cosmos. It's the same word that John is fond of um, uh, throughout the Gospel of John, throughout 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. And when John, the apostle the author of the gospel and the three epistles, uses the term world, cosmos, he almost uses it exclusively in terms of the world of sinners. When it says that God so loved this world, I, I think what the scripture is trying to embrace, what Jesus is trying to embrace, right? What he's trying to express is that God the Father's love for a world of lost sinners, for the great mass of fallen humanity, God has a love for them. And you might think, man, this is kind of incongruent, right? Like, that we're not supposed to love the world. Um, 1 John, the, the, you know, one of John's epistles, 1 John 2.15 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So we're not supposed to love cosmos. So why does the scripture speak about God so loving the cosmos? And I like, I like D.A. Carson's explanation in that. He says Christians are not to love the world with selfish love of participation. God loves the world with the selfless, costly love of redemption. Yeah, we're not supposed to love the world because our love of the world looks like our participation in it. God's love for the lost world looks like his willingness to send his son to redeem it. This is the difference. So we are not to be worldly. We are not. We're not to love the things in the world, pursuing the lust of uh, the desires of the flesh and the eyes and the pride of life. God loves a sinful world enough that he would give us a means of escaping the righteous judgment that we deserve. God so loved this fallen world. That's an amazing statement in and of itself. Because isn't it true that for the most part, if you share the gospel with, uh, with someone that has some knowledge of the gospel, a lot of them kind of think, okay, so like God the Father is like the real angry one, right? And God the Son is like the, the real pleasant one, the kind one that wants to you know, pay for our sins. And it almost seems like God, the Father, we're like, you know, the Son is like begging, like, oh, I know, I know Nam is such a sinner, but man, if you could see, if you would be kind to him, if you would just be gracious to him, right? And that's not how the Trinity works. There are three persons, certainly, but one divine motive. It is God, the Father here, that is said to express love, a kind of love for fallen humanity that would, that would conjure in him a desire to send his own son to redeem them. God, God is not, right, he's not reticent to save, to show grace, and to love. God the Father loves even sinners. And even in his love for sinners, we're not talking about a vague, sentimental emotionalism but he loves in such a way that it might cost him. And it cost him dearly. Right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. This is a phenomenal expression. It explains the extent and the manner of God's love for a sinful, rebellious, heartbreaking world of wicked humanity. His love is displayed in that he gave what cost him the most. He gave his only son. You think about the words of Romans 5, 6 through 8, and how precious those words are. For while we were still weak, and that term for weak is weak, right? Like, we don't mean that we were just weak. We mean that we had no capacity for anything good. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. 
for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, right? It's really hard for someone to die for some religious dude, some righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. Someone that's really good, someone you really care about, you might even, you might dare to take their place in death. But God shows his love for us, the love of the Father for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, not righteous, not good, while we're in our trespasses and sins, that's when Christ died for us. That's the extent of God's love for a sinful and fallen world. He gave his only son while they were still the world. They were still cosmos, sinful, fallen humanity. And in that state, while in that state, God sent his one and only son. Only is such a better translation than uh, begotten. Because the emphasis is not on begetting or begotten or being born or being birthed or anything like that. The emphasis is on the one and only, how unique the son is. It emphasizes that there is only one, and so that he would hold infinite value to God the Father. There's nothing more that the Father could have given that would be more precious to him than his own son, his one and only son. So in Romans 8, 32, one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture says this, God, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The logic of Romans 8.32 is simply this. If he has given you the best, are you worried that he's going to hold back something from you? He's already given you what it cost him the most, the most precious, the most valuable. And so are you in your pettiness concerned whether or not he will give you enough of the things in this life to satisfy you? He has given you the greatest, the infinite, the most wondrous gift. And are you complaining that it didn't come with the side of fries? You know, the, the, the infinite value of the son is captured in this phrase. God so loved this sinful world that he gave his only son. And there's, there's two ways in which God gave. One is kind of expressed in the next verse in verse 17. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. The idea being that in one sense, God gave the son in his incarnation. God sent the son from heaven to earth. That's one sense in which God gave the son. But the second is that he gave the son in terms of sacrifice. He gave the son to be incarnated, yes, but then to live a perfect life and to die so that not because he deserved to die, but that he would die the death that we deserved as payment for the death that we should be giving, that, that we should be penalized with. The son was given as the sacrificial lamb that could take away the sins of fallen human beings like you and I once and for all. That's what was expressed in verses 14 and 15, right? As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so much the Son of Man be lifted up. That's how God gave his Son, so that his Son would be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. He is the sacrifice, the payment, the propitiation for the penalty of our sins. So the 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so we might become the righteousness of God. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son in life and death and resurrection so that we might be forgiven. And the final phrase in John 3.16 is that whoever believes in him should, have, should not perish but have eternal life. So whoever is, um, is encouraging because it tells us that all are inclusive in terms of the invitation, right? It's whoever will believe in him. But at the same time, it, it excludes a, a great number of humanity 
Not every sinner will benefit from God's love displayed in the sending of his son. The whoever believes in him excludes those who are unwilling to believe in him. Right? Like the whoever tells us that it's all sorts of people. Doesn't matter your background, what you've been through, what your upbringing, what category of sinfulness that you've experienced, or how bad or deep, you know, your, your rejection of the Lord has been. It doesn't matter because any and all can come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. That's the whosoever. But the believing tells us that none will come to, 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 to Christ in salvation except those that believe, that embrace something that is true. The idea of belief is simply that. It is to believe. Believe something that is accurate or true. In, in Scripture, it is used of, of trusting in a simple truth, a reality, a statement, etc. But when it's used of a person, to believe in a person, to believe in God, to believe in Jesus, it speaks or means that we trust and obey that individual. We believe what they say and we're willing to follow what they command. It means that we understand them and what we understand about them convinces us their truthfulness and as a result of that, the consequences, I will follow you. Wherever you go, Lord, wherever you send me, I will follow. Right? So belief is then an act of of uh, acknowledging the truthfulness, the genuineness, right, the validity of a person and what they stand for, who they are, and what they command. It is a, it is a whole right, is a whole soul. It's a whole life, kind of given over to trusting in this individual, and as a result of that, it becomes transformative. To believe, right, is not here just. To have eternal life, that, that, I'm, not, I'm not diminishing that at all. But earlier, right, if Moses had lifted up the serpent in the wilderness and the Son of Man must be lifted up, whoever believes in him may have eternal life. There's this repeated emphasis by our Savior that says that you must believe. And in your belief, you are transformed. You have eternal life. Remember, it's in the context of the earlier part of this same chapter with discussion with Nicodemus. You must be born again. It is literally an expansion of what it means to be born again. He's saying something that is rebirth, that is not just, you know, a, a reclamation project. It's not hiring someone to write, fix stuff that is kind of out of sync. He's saying there must be something brand new, a new creation that, that must take place. And that is instigated, right? That is, that is, um, um, that is in conjunction with faith in Jesus Christ. Earlier in John chapter 1, verse 12 to 13, it says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Faith or belief is not a work of our own effort or energy. It is merely the reaction to God's grace and truth revealed to us through the Holy Spirit. It, it is the act of receiving, right? It, it, is not, it is not a work that we generate. It's not a power that we have to instigate within ourselves. It is recognizing truth and receiving that truth and acknowledging that truth in a way that changes us. And so even in John 1, what we just read, verse 13, they were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man. It's not, it's not by your birth, by your will, by your intelligence, by your capacities. It is merely the work of God. And your faith is just receiving what God has already done. So you return back to that phrase, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever, whosoever, it's probably a better translation because that's how I memorized it, right? Whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Perishing, this word is interesting. It's not expanded upon much in the scriptures. 
but is a word that, according to the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, means a definitive destruction. Not merely in the sense of the extinction of physical existence, but rather of an eternal plunge into Hades and a hopeless destiny of death. As well expressed. In other words, there are two options. One is to perish eternally, to have death reside in us, not death like it just ends and then there's kind of this nothingness, but a continual and endless eternal death that has suffered for all time. That's the perishing. And the other is, option is eternal life. The infinitely, qualitatively eternal life that our hearts can't fully imagine, but we constantly find endlessly desiring. And you think about, what, what do you want? You know? Well, I just want to just look and die. Is, is, that, is that the purpose of your existence? Some of us might be captivated by, I just want to play video games, right? And eat a couple noodles, and that's how I want to live. But at some point, everything has its limit. Everything has its, its, its end. Everything has the limitations of this life. And what we desire is something more, to experience something, to know something, to be glad about something, to rejoice in something, right? To be satisfied and fulfilled and purposeful. We, we want to be connected with something bigger than ourselves. That's why we stare off into space, right, when the stars are out. That's why we stare at the Grand Canyon and go, man, that's a really big hole. But there's something cool about that, right? That's why we look at things that are bigger and larger than us, and we think, man, there's something kind of connective there. There's something valuable there. There's something beautiful, intrinsic there. It's this desire in us to connect with what life is meant to be. And eternal life is the fullest expression of what, what we are meant and created to be without sin and in every experience that the human being has been created to know. It is the fullness. And again, I, I'm trying to say, I probably can't express it well enough. And neither can you, because we don't, we don't know what that's like. We don't know what it's like to find a joy that is so good or a satisfaction and a desire that is so, so strong and delightful that is untouched by selfishness or by sin. But that's what eternal life will bring. There's either a perishing or eternal life. And the glory of John 3, 16 is the truth that God's love for sinners like us is so strong that he gave his son to live and to die, to be raised in victory over sin and death so that we might have eternal life in him. See, this is the gospel in summary. And that's the value of John 3.16. For all of us who are kind of hanging around the edges, and there's always some of us that are, who are uncertain about, you know, what I believe. I mean, I kind of want to be religious, or I'm curious, or I'm just kind of wanting to know more about this stuff. Look, this is a simple statement of what the gospel is. There is a God, and he loves sinners. Yes, he loves sinners. That seems like a weird thing to say to some of us, right? Because we're convinced that God hates sinners. He does. He hates sin, and he destroys sinners, but his love is for those that are perishing. And his desire is for none to perish, but that all should come to faith in Jesus Christ. So there is, there is both of those expressions that are true. Does God, does, does his will declare, does he will the destruction of sinners? Yes. Does he will the repentance of sinners? Yes. And both of those things are in God. That's the expression of God's love for us. And the evidence of his love for sinners is that he gave his only son. So that if any should cast their faith and acknowledge the person and work of Jesus Christ, that individual might be saved, forgiven of their sins, and given everlasting, eternal, valuable life. So believe in God's only son. Don't wait till you make yourself better. Don't hope for better options. 
Don't, don't sit around thinking about, okay, yeah, but I, I want to I wanna experience all the good stuff of this life first, and then I'll become a Christian later. It's all nonsense, and it's all lies. There is eternal life, or there is perishing. Believe in God's only Son. Secondly, verses 17 to 18, believe in His name. Believe in His name. Verse 17 says, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Jesus did not come to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved. This is a a wondrously helpful statement. It It says that Jesus was sent, the Son was sent. God did not send His Son into the world to condemn. It's the word krino. It means to judge. And that word for judgment is, is neutral. Like it means to cast the judgment. But in its context, it could be used negatively. And here, certainly, it is negative or adverse. It's the judgment, right? The negative judgment, the adverse judgment of condemnation. The point seems to be that God didn't send his son to come and condemn, to judge, to destroy the world. Not, not, not here. It is, it is the son's mission not to condemn, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus has come into the world not for, not for the purpose of just destroying everybody. And we know that. In his earthly existence, he wasn't born and started looking around, just started pew, 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 just slaying fools, right? That's not what he came to do. He came to live a life of perfect obedience and sinlessness and to offer his life up as a sacrifice in place of sinners so that their sins might be paid for in full. He came to save not to condemn. This is not to say that Jesus is not the judge of the world. In fact, in John 9, that's exactly what Scripture will tell us, that Jesus has come into the world for judgment. He has authority to judge, right? John 9, 39. And that is the, the more neutral sense of judgment. In other words, he will be the final judge. He will determine, did you place your faith in me or did you not? He is the judge of the world in that sense. The point here is that he didn't just come to slay the world. He came instead to save it. That the world might be saved through him. That is his mission in his earthly life. That everything that he might accomplish, his teaching, his miracles, his perfect life, his death and his resurrection, had a particular intention in order that the world might be saved through him. This is why the Father sent him. This is why he was incarnated. This is why he entered into our space, into our world, so that he might be the Lamb of God that would take away the sins, take away our sins once and for all. I mean, Gary did a great job on a Good Friday service for those that, that were there, and just talking about the repeated sacrifice of the Old Testament system, constantly, Again and again, daily, on the Day of Atonement, just repeated, sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. And as the book of Hebrews says, it was a constant reminder that your sins were always, right, were always with you. Because otherwise, if a sacrifice was done, it would be done. But no, it would be repeated and repeated and repeated until Jesus came and his sacrifice would be once for all, so that he sits down at the right hand of God in glory because at least in terms of his atoning work, it's finished. There's nothing more to be added. There's no more that needs to be sacrificed. There is nothing, an addition that is necessary. He is the lamb, the lamb, the final lamb that could take away the sins of the world. That's verse 17. Verse 18 tells us, well, then, if that's the case, if he did not come to condemn but to save, Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Then the only thing that we are called to do is believe in the name of the only Son of God. That's that last phrase. But, but let's, let's enrich ourselves a little bit by thinking about the rest of verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. That makes sense, right? Those that have believed in Jesus Christ, his death, his resurrection, his lordship, they have found eternal life. Forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Jesus has repeated that over and over. 
that if you believe in the Son of Man, you have eternal life. If you believe in the Son of Man, you have eternal life. So that's established already. But here's the second part of verse 18. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. This is interesting because, because yes, for the redeemed, for the Christian, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? As Romans 8.1. But for everyone else, they're condemned already. This is an interesting phrase because what this suggests is that the world of sinners has already, is already in a position of condemnation. I, I, don't, I don't know that I need to, you know, to emphasize this to you, but um, you realize that a human being, a human soul, the soul sitting next to you and yourself included, right? We're not born neutral. The world of sinners is not neutral. They, we, they don't just walk around going, okay, I might, I might choose perishing and loving the world, or I might, I might choose believing in Jesus and eternal life. It may seem like that for the human being who hears an invitation to repent and believe. But in, in actuality, what, what Scripture is telling us here is that whoever does not believe is condemned already. He persists in his unbelief, and that persistence in unbelief is already condemned. It's already condemnable. The, the adverse judgment is already upon him because he has not believed in the name of the Son of Man. Ephesians 2 tells us in the first verse that you were dead in your trespass and sins in which you walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So what Ephesians 2 is trying to establish about our sinfulness is that that is the default, right? That's the default setting for every human soul. You are born a sinner. We don't sin because, you know, we're good people who occasionally do bad things. We sin because that is in our nature. That's what we're born to. Every Christian in this room, yes, you have been reborn. Born again by the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. But before Christ, before faith in Christ, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Condemned. You weren't a neutral party. You weren't one that was floating and was like, oh, there's a little bit of tug of this and a little bit of tug of that, right? We're not the, we're not the embodiment of the yin and yang, right? There's a darkness in us and there's a light in us. Which way will we, which way will we fall, right? We're not that. We're pure darkness. Scripture is going to um, uh, explicate that a little bit further, that we are pure darkness. But the whole point is this. Whoever does not believe is already condemned. And if you're sitting here, and you're kind of wondering about the gospel of Jesus Christ, or you're uncertain about that. I mean, this, this is meant to just be an, an exhortative warning to you that there is no neutral party. You're either standing here or sitting here condemned, dead in your trespasser sins, or you have been redeemed because Christ has died that death that you deserve to die. No one is saved without believing in Jesus Christ. But no one is saved outside of already been, been dead in their trespasses and sins. There is salvation in no one else. right? For there is no name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That's Acts 4.12. But the reason I bring that up is because here it says that whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Believing in the name is an interesting expression that we find in Scripture, right? And the idea of name, the, you know, a name is, is by itself a categorically, right, divine act. God names things. And he gives us names. And it's not just a moniker. It's not just something so that you can identify something, right? This is a music stand, right? Um, this is a microphone. 
We name it those things, and we have an intention about it. What does a music stand do? It stands. You put stuff that helps you play music on it. See, the name usually has some reference to its function, or to its value, or to its character. That's a microphone. What's a microphone? Well, it's micro, meaning it's smaller version of a giant phone. I made that last part up. Phone, <laughs> phone meaning from phonics, sound. I'm pretty sure it means that it amplifies sound, and it's smaller than other things that amplify sound, like a big old giant horn, right? I'm pretty sure that. But that's right. there's meaning in names. And God has intended that as image bearers. We name things. We don't just number them. Hey, can you guys help uh, break down the stuff in front? Yeah, put number 14 away, right? And put 77, right, in the storage unit, right? Like we, we don't just name things just, just for the sake of having it identified by number. We give it a name that has, that has purpose, that has some sensibility to it. And God's the one that began that. So that even if someone is named something like Abram, little father, God says, you know what? I'm going to change your name to Abraham, father of multitudes. And that immediately tells us by God's renaming of him that God has an intention in what he's going to do with his life, right? Like the first human is named Adam, Adam. It's the word that literally means man. And so when you're reading through the beginning of, uh, of, of, of our scriptures in the, um, in the opening chapters of Genesis, and it says, Ha-Adam, you're, you're wondering, okay, is this Adam or is he talking about mankind here? Is he saying man does this or is he saying that Adam did this, right? Because his name means man. See, every name has a meaning and intention. And so when scripture is talking about naming things, there is an intention behind it. It speaks of its nature, its value, its function, its purpose. And so when here it says because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God, it means so much more than the acknowledgement of Jesus, of saying his name, Jesus, you know, of saying a prayer. I believe in Jesus. I believe he's died and risen again for my sins. Amen. Right? He's not a mantra. He's not just a moniker to identify him. God, though, when God sends Gabriel and says, hey, this is, this is um, the son of God and you will name him Jesus. He gives us that name Jesus. Why? Because he's going to save his people from their sins. Every name, right? His, his name is Christ. Is that because is that that's his last name? Is he born to Joseph and Mary Christ? No, that, that is a title, right? He's the Messiah, the Christos, right? And it goes on and on. Every name has it. So it's not a particular name that is emphasized here. But the idea is that individuals have believed in the full person, the full truthfulness of who the only Son of God is. They have taken him at his word. They have believed his character. They have believed on him and everything about him, his reputation, his truthfulness, right? Everything that he claims to do and, and everything that he claims to be, and they have believed on him. It means that they have vested themselves fully into the name of the only Son of God. Not to a particular name, not to just the name Jesus, not to just the name Christ, not just the name Son, but they have believed wholly on the full character, work, and person of the Son of God. And not just the Son of God, but here it emphasizes the only Son of God. There, there is, there is, right, no other option of finding salvation and forgiveness of sins. As I said, we celebrate Resurrection Sunday because if Christ isn't raised from the dead, we are still dead in our trespasses and sins. And the dividing point of all humanity is whether or not they believe in the name of the only Son of God. So see, the great question in the day of judgment, the great question of every human being's guilt will not center on the specifics or the seriousness of their crimes. I mean, those are significant because every sin will be paid for in full. That's true. But what I'm saying is that's not going to be the final question. The final question will simply be, did you believe in the name of the Son of God, the only Son of God? And it is, it is faith in the Son of God or lack thereof that will determine the eternal destiny of every human soul. I, I think our... 
you know, our unbelieving friends and relatives often think that, you know, that it will be difficult for God the judge to condemn them, right? Because they figure, you know, hey, I lived a pretty good life, you know? I didn't ax murder anybody, right? I didn't, I didn't do wicked things. I didn't take advantage of it. I was a pretty moral person. And, and if, you weigh, if you weigh my life, right, that's the moral neutral idea. If you weigh my life, I've done more good than I have done bad. And so I think God will have a hard time saying, oh, I need to be punished eternally. But they have the wrong scale. It's not about what you did or didn't do. Ultimately, it's simply about what did you believe. And specifically, what did you believe about the most precious individual, the most precious gift that God in his love would send to the world. What did you do with the knowledge of Jesus, God's one and only son? That's enough to condemn for all of eternity. And it's enough to save for all of eternity. Believe in his name. Because Christ was sent not to come and just destroy this world but to save it. And it's the name of the Son of God that if we believe in that name, then we might be saved. Believe in God's only Son, believe in His name, and then come to His light. Here's the last part in verses 19 through 21. Verse 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. This is an interesting phrase that this is the judgment because at least in our English, it almost sounds like this is how God is judging us by sending the light into the world. But that, that's not, I think, what this is meaning. I, I, the phrase, I think, is meant to say that this is, this is how judgment, right, is demonstrated. This is why judgment is justified. In other words, why are they already condemned? Why is the judgment of their condemnation already directed? already satisfied, already declared. And not so much that, that God is here making a final declaration of judgment. That's not, not, not what that phrase means. But is saying that this is how judgment is enacted out. This is why judgment has come. Because the light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than the light. God has sent his one and most precious only son he has come not to condemn the world, but to save it. And as that light has come into this world, how did the sinful humanity that God the Father loved so much, how did they respond? Well, they responded, right, by loving the darkness rather than the light. They, they chose darkness rather than light. God loved them. In that same terminology, God loved the world, is used here. The people also love, but they loved the darkness instead of the light. They preferred darkness to the light of Jesus Christ. John 8, 12, Jesus will say, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. See, Jesus is the revelation of God. And, and like Leon Morris says, he's the objectification of divine holiness and purity. That's what he means by he is the light. He is the light in terms of he's the truthfulness, the revelation of everything that is God. But he's also the, 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 the physical becoming of God's divine holiness and purity. Like we could see the light, the moral light. We could see the light of truthfulness, the light of spiritual like holiness and purity. We see all of that in Jesus. And as that Jesus, as that person walks among us and that message of the gospel is proclaimed throughout the world in all of human history, as that light has come into the world, how have the people responded? So many have chosen to love not the light, but the darkness. This is why judgment is declared. This is why we are condemned already. Because the reality of our sinfulness, what does it look like to have been dead in our trespasses and sins? Every person born of a mom and a dad, right? If you're physically born, and I think even if you're a test tube baby, right? Um, you're born with a human nature, that is already, right, is already a sinner. 
And as a result of that, th this is what it would look like. What if the light comes? Well, our natural reaction to the light will be that we love not the light, but the darkness. We choose darkness. We choose not to know. We choose not to believe. Romans 1 says it's a matter of suppressing the truth and ungodliness. We'll do whatever it takes to deny the truthfulness of our Savior and the need for purification. We'll deny all of that stuff. And instead, we will cling, it says here, we'll love the darkness rather than the light. We will cling to the evil because their works were evil. It's a moral decision. It's because their works are evil. You know, I want you to notice something, right? They love the darkness. That's an expression of affection. More than the light, because their works were evil. Because of their decision, right? To pursue the work, the, you know, the, the desires of evil. And so, evil... That work, that intention, that purpose, is what is feeding their affection. They would never love the light, except for a rebirth, except for the Holy Spirit transforming them. Why? Because they love the darkness, because that's their purpose, intention, and work. This is the judgment, right? This is why the judgment will be disfavorable. This is why condemnation um, is real. And this is why every person that walks on the face of the planet is condemned already. This is why we, this is why we are children of wrath by nature. Because we do the deeds that we want to do, and those are darkness. So we love the darkness. It is, our, it is our work, it is our intention, it is our purpose, and it is our affections all tied together. It is... Just as we are supposed to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind, this is we love the darkness with all our soul, strength, right, mind, and heart. I mean, all of it. We are, we are wholeheartedly committed to that darkness. Verse 20, because wicked doers avoid the light. I know that's not, that's not, that's not a great word, but it's the best I could do. Verse 20. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Look, if we are wholesale committed to the works of darkness, and then we have, because of that, we, we love doing the works of darkness, then we're going to hate the light. Right? Strong words of emotional affection and disaffection, right? We love one and hate the other, Jesus would often say. And we will hate the light. Why? Wicked doers avoid the light, it says, because right, they, they don't come to the light lest his works should be exposed. He detests, that's what that word means, he loathes the light. Because in the end, his identity, his activity, his desires prejudice him against exposure to the light. He doesn't want to be exposed to God, his truthfulness, right? The person of Christ, the embodiment of purity and holiness. He doesn't want any of that because he's already well-vested. He has something that he, has, that he loves with his whole heart, with his soul, with his might, with his mind, his energies, his entire life. He's already got it. He has his God and his God is himself in the darkness. So he loves his God, his life, his darkness, and hates the light. Why does he hate the light? Because the light exposes the darkness. It implies that there is a natural and deep-seated, even if he denies it, sense of shame and guilt for what he does and who he is. Wicked doers avoid the light at all costs. Because the opposite of everything they want to live for. But the true doers, I know, that's, that's really bad. I couldn't think of another way to express it. That I'm trying to express, but whoever does what is true, and that, just, that would just go off the page, right? But verse 21, true doers come to the light. But whoever does what is true comes to the light. So they may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out 
in God. Uh, there, there is, like verse 20 and verse 21 are perfectly contrasted. Now, notice this, verse 20. Everyone who does wicked things, verse 21, whoever does what is true, right? Verse 20. He hates the light and does not come to the light. Verse 21, he comes to the light. Verse 20, lest his works should be exposed. Verse 21, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. I mean, it's literally the exact opposite. This is what it means to be born again. This is what it means to have new life, to be regenerated, right? To understand our position in the light, in Christ. Whoever does what is true comes to the light. In other words, this is a believer, redeemed, reborn. And as a result of that, his desires have changed. And as his desires have changed, he tries to do that which is true. Again, that is appropriate to the person, the work, and the reputation, the name of the Son of God. So he does what is true. That individual comes to the light. He doesn't hate the light. He loves the light, right? And he does so, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Can I point out something that I think is kind of interesting and maybe valuable for us? That whereas the, the, the wicked doer who avoids the light, he avoids the light specifically because he doesn't want his work to be exposed. The true doer, the one of faith, he comes to the light. I think that implies that, that there is shame, right? This is, a, again, we weren't neutral parties and this guy chose light, right? Versus darkness. We were all darkness. But when he steps out into the light, he chooses light. He chooses to come to the light, which means he chooses to be exposed. That his shame is out and open before the eyes of a holy God. This is, this is John, the apostle. And it reminds me of 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There is a natural exposure that the children of light are okay with. But being recognized as failing and struggling with sin. There's a, there's a willingness to come clean. And to recognize our sin, right? To know that God knows and God does know. Every petty, every, you know, selfish, every prideful, every ridiculous thing that is in your heart, even if it's not been expressed aloud or has not been acted upon, right? Like every sinful notion that still clings to that flesh, right? God knows it all. But the one that believes in Jesus Christ into life he comes to the light. He's willing for that to be exposed to the Lord. He's willing to confess that openly. Why? So that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. In other words, anything that is good, it is clearly God and God alone. And anything that is wicked, he's willing to take before the Lord and let the Lord burn it away. The first, right, the wicked, follows his course to hide in darkness because his works are evil. The second, the redeemed, follows his course to the light to show that it has been done by and through God. See, John's point here is not an encouragement towards determinism, you know? Uh, you guys are already condemned already. Just give up, you know? Just go hog wild. Do whatever you gotta do because, you know, it's gonna come at the end, right? It's not a, oh, well, it's too late. Instead, John's purpose is to offer us a warning and an invitation. The warning is that all of us are born with a sin nature. All of us are born to the darkness. All of us are born and our life is spiritually dead, right? We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We will naturally recoil at the light of God in Christ. We, we want nothing and we are condemned already and we want nothing to do with the light of life. But if we... By faith, in the name of Jesus, will come to the light. 
Expose our shame and guilt. If we repent and turn to Christ in faith, believing that what he says about himself and what he has accomplished on the cross and how he's raised the third day as he promised to his disciples, if we will trust what he says and obey what he commands, we would be born again. We would be saved. We would find new life in Christ. That's what we celebrate at Easter. We have life, life from death and darkness because Christ has overcome the darkness with his life, with his sacrifice, and with his resurrection. John 3, 36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. It is a warning and is an invitation. So we go back to the beginning. Believe in God's only Son. That's John 3.16. Believe in His name, who He is and what He says. 17 through 18. And then come to the light. Verses 19-21. And I hope that this Easter Sunday would be an encouragement to you. That this passage would be an encouragement to you. Especially if you are not certain about who you are in Christ. That you would come to the light that you'd be willing to confess whatever you think of, all that you have in terms of your sinfulness, that you'll repent and turn away from that, turn to Christ alone, to trust in him, to trust that he can and is willing to rescue you from your sins, and that you will find new life, joy, eternal life in him. That's the message of the gospel, and that's what we celebrate on Resurrection Sunday. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you great praise for all the good that you have done in us through Christ. And Father, through it all, um, all of John chapter 3, we recognize that it is not of ourselves. It is the work of God through the Holy Spirit by the lifting up of the Son that we might have life. Lord, there is not a single redeemed soul in here that deserves that kind of love. But you have cast your love your salvation and eternal life upon us, not because we deserve it, but because your love is so great. May we never diminish that. May we cherish that and delight in the love of God for us, displayed in the sending of your Son, so that any who believe on his name might not perish but have eternal life. We praise and celebrate the truthfulness of the gospel and the eternal life we have in him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.